to give a quick recap of where we are in our in our journey. Um, I know Dan sent out the email of the seven levels that we've done uh, till now. Um, and I, I think that we kind of, uh, um, I want to recap it with some new material. Um, we talked about um, life as a Jew. And this is really what we're talking about. That's, that's the content of, of, of our discussion. And we presented it perhaps uh, uh, in, in one light earlier when we said that the question is, what kind of world are you living in? You know, we choose which world we live in. And we emerge, we enter the world, and everything we see is, is about us. We're selfish, and all our interests, all our concerns, all our priorities are for the well-being of our body. You ask any baby, that's all they care about. Um, they care about themselves, and themselves exclusively, and they care about their physical well-being. That's all, that's all their, that's their world. And as we grow older, the, hopefully, you know, we're going to mature, and we'll start noticing other people. And we'll start expanding our world to include others as well. But additionally, we start to expand our interests and our priorities to include things that are not just physical. You know, we get, we have more sophisticated taste. You know, we, we start thinking about family. We start thinking about other people and doing good in the world and making an impact and leaving a legacy. And these are examples of a maturation of a human. That's what it is. You become more mature and what your world changes. And in Judaism... You know, it is presented very stark uh, contrasts. You have the world of the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is the force, or it's the it's the um, um, it's the perspective that wants you to be totally selfish and totally physical. And then you have the idea of God, which is something which is we can only embrace if we're not selfish and if we open up our spiritual sides as well. And the goal of these ten steps is to take us from one to the other. Right? From this world, or the world that starts off as being upside down, if you remember that uh, analogy. We're in the upside down world and we want to straighten things out. You know, we're drawn to when we get sober. All those examples that we've given. Um, the Talmud says, Talmud quotes a verse, the Torah says, Lo becha el zar. You should not have within you a foreign god. Now what does that mean? Shouldn't swallow a little Buddha. No, you should, <clears throat> you know, not uh, not go to any, not worship anything other. Yes, than but God. what does it mean within you? So you what's this far? What's the foreigner that's within us? So I tell myself question. Wait a minute. What's this foreign guy that's within us? It says that's the Yates of Rock. Intellectually right. What you shouldn't what even you're think. Thinking? What you're thinking. Yeah. Okay. So, but 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 clearly that's that's the perspective of the tour, regardless, right? But, 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 but where is this deity, this pagan deity that's within us all? That's the Yetzirah. And, you know, perhaps another way of looking at this is that we all bow at the altar of some deity. The question is, which one is it going to be? You know, we start off with the dominance of the Yetzirah and what it compels us to do and to focus on and to prioritize. And hopefully we'll change and we'll embrace the, you know, embrace the, the ultimate deity, the ultimate power, and that's the Almighty. And essentially life is going to be this conflict between the inborn, dominant, or at least at the beginning of our lives, dominant uh, a deity that we have within us. And we're going to have to reverse that. We're going to have to change it. We have to kind of supplant the Yetzirah with God. If you look at a lot of the prayers that we have um, on the high holidays, which is the time where we kind of revisit these big macro-Jewish issues. Uh, we talk about uh, stamping out the foreign 
uh, uh, kingdom in the world. And of course, that could have lots of meanings. Uh, but one of the meanings is the fact that there's this dominion of this foreign god over our world, you know, collectively, but also our little small individual world. You know, who, who controls, like, who dominates me? Who's in control of me? Like, what can't I give up? You know, if you have something that you can't give up, you're beholden, right? you're, you're submitted, you're subjugated to certain wants, well, that is controlling you. And that's your God to a certain extent. That's the, you know, that is who tailors and telegraphs your behavior. So when you look at behavior, you, you have those things that's, oh, this, is, this, this I cannot possibly imagine giving up. So some people say, listen, you're a rabbi, you're talking about torture food. Some things I'm never going to give up. Not going to happen. I, I need those staples, right? Everyone has their little thing that they fill in the box with, right? Mm-hmm. These are the things that, to me, this, well, okay, well, what does that mean? It means that you are enslaved to that particular desire, want, whim, you call in a need. Right? You're, you're enslaved. How are you not enslaved? You're not free to act on your own, correct? Mm-hmm. You're not free to act. What does it mean to be enslaved? It means to be hindered, to be... You know, to have obstacles. Right? And we are like that as well. And there's this control that we're under. We're under the spell of the eight Sarah. And we're handcuffed. Can't do anything about it. Right? What does that mean? That means, to a certain extent, there's this foreign God that's within us. And everyone has this foreign God within them in some capacity. And that's why life has meaning. You know, that's what it's all about. It's all about we have this foreign god, and it's in control, and we can't imagine doing things other way, uh, uh, you know, uh, any 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 other way. And it's unthinkable for us to give up on some things that we think is so necessary, you know, so vital, and can't live without. And then to free ourselves of those shackles and become truly free people is what the Torah is offering us. And it's ironic, I'll take it in a second, um, it's ironic that the Torah tells us that, uh, and I, I mentioned this pr- previously, the Torah tells us, uh, you know, maybe I didn't, I, which I'm aware of, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, if I did, pardon me. The Torah tells us that who's the free person? He who has Torah. Wait, Torah, let's read Torah. Restriction, 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 restriction. Don't do this, don't do this, do this, do that. How is that a free person? The answer is yes. Regardless of who we are, we are slaves. The question is, to whom? To what? When we free ourselves of the Yetzirah, right? we may indeed stop doing things and withhold from doing things, and that itself is freedom. Could that be something as simple as using salt? What do you mean using salt? You can't without it. I, I mean, no, well, no. you can get it from other food, mm-hmm. but actually using salt, because I'm, I'm a very heavy salter, and so is that not yeah, well, no, it's a nutrition. If you, if you have to have it, what's interesting is that the, uh, the Mishnah says that we have to study Torah with such commitment that even if we only have bread and salt to eat and all we can only lay on the floor, we don't have a bed, we have to be dedicated to Torah. So maybe salt's a good thing. Maybe that's, uh, you know, if that's all you got, right? Salt, bread and salt. Salt of the earth. It's just, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, so what's, 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 okay, so, so this is an important point here. Yes, of course, there's a danger of saying that there are certain things that are my hang-ups that I can't give up on. You know, that means you're indebted to a certain extent. On the other hand, 
if someone says, "Oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I don't want me to do that to anything," and they they kind of go too fast, there's going to be the you know the pushback, the spring, so to speak. You push the spring too hard, and eventually it's going to send you back even further. Right? There's going to be backlash. So. Um, that's why it's very healthy to use the Torah as as the context for what we're going to say no to and what we're not going to say no to. If you're, I mean, if you're dealing with the kosher, yes. If all you know when you grow up is kosher, and like, it, well, in Israel, at least a lot of things, everything's kosher. Not everywhere now, but it's almost. Then it's not. It's not a, that big a deal. You're not even. You're not exposed to all these other things. Yeah, but there's always going to be at some point in which you'll have the conflict. So it may not be in kosher. Right, no, but we're talking... I'm just That's true, I, I agree. So, so you know, for it's some people... It's a lot easier. Be, yeah, it's a lot easier, of course, in, in such an environment. But uh, there's a sort of point I, I want to say. We'll get to your point in a second as well. Um, and that is that the Torah gives us a lot of things that are prohibited by Torah law. Now, we could say that these are arbitrary and then they have value... Uh, to, you know, as well. It means even if you say, "Oh, does the Torah, does the Mani really care what I eat if I eat the, you know, this kind of, uh, yeah, do I eat a, a cow that has a puncture in blood or a cow that does not have a puncture in blood? They're exactly the same thing nutrition wise. Like that's a good question. Uh, and the answer is, let's assume we're right. Let's assume. Let's just assume for you know, for argument's sake, that you're right. Still, this value of being of teaching yourself how to say no to your whims. That's valuable. In any respect. Now, the question, self-discipline, exactly. But the problem is if you're too self-disciplined, if you say, I'm not going to do anything, you become an ascetic, then eventually you probably end up becoming a nihilist, right? Because if you push yourself too hard, there's going to be backlash. So what's the balance, right? So I think the balance ought to be is that, okay, let's just follow Torah's guidelines. And therefore, Torah says, Torah means the Almighty wants us to have a good time, right? It's not like the Almighty says, oh, be celibate and be ascetic and starve yourself. The, the, The Torah doesn't say anything like that. Torah gives us modest guidelines of what we should and shouldn't do. So to say I'm not going to have chocolate because I want to fight, maybe that's a good idea, um, but maybe it could also be very dangerous. Um, and because you like chocolate, and you know we we like life, and why should life not be fun? Why should not be life not be wonderful? We did a study over at my table a few months ago of the path of the just, mm-hmm. and one of the topics in that was. Why put things on yourself that Torah did not put on yourself? Because you're just setting yourself up. Because once you put that on you, you're obligated to carry through with it. And so you're well, if you accept the, if you yourself. accept an oath, is that your point? If you accept an oath, and you're obligated to fulfill it. Torah said that it even had to go to an oath. But if I decide I'm going to put a level on myself that Torah did not put, he said, "Why do that?" Mine yeah. So there's a few there's a few sources to that idea. Um, number one, we have the, the quip of the Talmud, Daimash Asra Torah. It's enough with the Torah. The Torah banned enough things for us. You know, we don't have to add more. Mm-hmm. And additionally, there's the, uh, there's the episode of the Nazir. The Nazir is the guy who, did, who makes a, a vow to abstain from wine and from impurity for a minimum of 30 days. And at the end of that 30-day process, they have to bring a special atonement sacrifice in the temple. Why do you have to atone? It's a mitzvah, right? You're withholding from wine. You're... You're refraining from frivolity. It's wonderful, right? Well, no. Because the Torah, the Almighty gave us wine for our pleasure, and you pained yourself by abstaining from it. And that's not a mitzvah either. And in fact, you would have to atone for that because you pained yourself from withholding from wine. My point is, is that the idea in general is a very powerful idea and very necessary idea, but how we apply it, it we have to be very careful with how we apply it. 
Um, I, I, and I do think there is room for someone to say, okay, I'm not going to do something even though it's prohibited by the, if it's permitted by the Torah, right? You know, the people that, you know, obsessively check their phones, right? Um, there's a lot of people out there like that. You're always checking your phones just to see if they, they get any information, any emails, what's happening on Facebook, right? Um, so that's permitted by Torah law. I can't find any Torah law that would <laughs> prohibit that. But maybe that's a good idea to say, well, I'm going to take an hour off, right? An hour off for life outside of a smartphone, right? And maybe that's too challenging for some teenagers or whatever. But, you know, that, that's not a bad idea. And I'm not saying not to do that. Um, but I think that there's a danger of making our bodies miserable for spiritual gains. You know, we want to kind of go slow and easy, right? We have 70 years or 80 years. We or, don't wear camel hair shirts, right? Oh, yeah. Um, Something just escaped me. I hate when this happens. It's going to sound terrible <laughs> on the podcast. Um, oh, yeah. So um, prophecy. We talked about prophecy uh, last week. Or maybe we'll revisit it again this week. Um, but prophecy, if you look at some very famous prophets, uh, for example, Isaac. Uh, Isaac wants to have prophecy. What does he do to have prophecy? Right? He wants to bless his son, Esau. He tells him, listen, I want you to go and catch me the freshest um, 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 game out there and make me two massive plates of steaks. That's what he asked for. And I said, okay, Rabbi, how, how, do we get, how do we get the prophecy? You know what we do? Let's have the most delectable, succulent steak out there. That's how we get prophecy. What? Didn't we say prophecy is disavowing from the physical to embrace the spiritual? Another example. We know King David, when he would want to have prophecy, he would play music. Now, there's a big debate as to whether music is spiritual, physical, or someplace, you know, at the touch point of those two. But either way, I'm saying that's not uh, asceticism. That's not denial. That's embracing the finer things, the pleasures of life. How is that the avenue to get prophecy? And the answer is, is that prophecy is ecstatic uh, or ecstasy for the soul. But there's this balance where if your soul is going to go up, your body's going to suffer. It has to be like that. that. They're opposites. You can't have both. Now, what happens if you're going to have your soul sore? What's going to happen to your body? Your body's going to have to suffer. Well, how do you, what do you do when your body is suffering? You've got to throw it a bone, right? you got to appease your body. Well, how do you appease your body? With some steak, with some music. Right? So we want to make sure that in our spiritual growth, our body's on board. So we have to kind of throw out a few treats, like, you know, good boy, good boy, right? That's what we got to do for our body. So to say, to totally cut off its lifeline, right, to kind of corner it, a cornered body is very dangerous. Because eventually you push it too hard, you say, okay, no chocolate, no salt, no this, no that, right? You push it too hard, and what happens? It's like when you have a diet, right? Okay, I'm going off all flour, all sugar, all this, all that. And for two days you're miserable, and the day three you go on a binge like you've never seen before, right? Why? You're like, ah, screw it, I'm out, right? And you just, you're like piled, you pile the table up and you do the ah. <laughs> you just engorge yourself with, with candy and junk and donuts. And, you right? yourself. Exactly, and that, that's very dangerous. In a second. That's very dangerous. So we have to make sure is that when we, we're battling Yetzirah, He's very cagey. He's very capable. There's a reason why he's so dominant. Right? We grow in small stages by 
cutting off by cutting off his support, but not by kind of making ourselves miserable in the process. Yeah. Whenever I want to limit myself from something, like for example, um, if I notice I'm gaining weight and I'm, I'm, I think to myself, I'm going to get into a diet, and every single time I say, I'm going to get into a diet, I cannot, I cannot do it. I even get hungrier. I start picking <laughs> up more food. I, I just look at everything as food. And so for me, I have to not think I'm going into a diet. I just think I have to go exercise. I have to watch what I eat. Because if I say I'm gonna go into a diet, then I, I just eat more. Yeah. So 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 this I'm saying this is it's a good point. Like this principle applies everywhere. You know, when you want to change, how do you change? You know, maybe this is something we could talk about at great length here. How do you change? This is all about change, right? Mm-hmm. We start off as the baby, and we have to change. Right. No, how, so of course life will force, hopefully, will force us to change, invariably. You know, that's the growth pains of adulthood is that we have to change, we have to become more mature. Uh, but what kind of the, what are the mechanics, some of the technical aspects of change, you know? Well, and one of them is, is that it's got to be slow and gradual, and it's got to be kind of integration of a new lifestyle that you like, that's positive. But there also has to be, I'm not sure this is <clears throat> an appropriate point or not, but there has to be a human, there has to be an adult element there somewhere, a paternalistic, because... If we just, you know, if, we, if we're if we born and never have any connection, there's not someone there to guide us, uh, you know, uh, as a baby, we're, we're going to die. Yeah, that's true. Well, I'm saying not only physically, but I'm saying if we don't have someone to kind of raise us in a responsible way. Like right. If, like that's the importance of parenting, you know, right. that uh, the system is set up that if there's no parent that's kind of, parenting the child, the child's going to grow awry. It's going to go in crazy directions. Like that? Uh, I don't know if like that. What is that? Uh, kids. <laughs> right? So, um, so it's, it's, very, it's very harmful for children to not have guidance and, that, and, that, and not to be told, don't do, we don't do this, we don't do Like those, you know, encouragement and, you know, the proper behavior. But, Kids who grow up in in in, in homes or single family homes, um, where there's only one parent to juggle a couple of kids, and the parent is usually busy or on uh, uh, the PlayStation or whatever, those kids grow up really messed up. But the parent is also part of God's plan, are they not? Oh yeah, exactly. To teach them, <coughs> teach them <coughs> to love your God. To speak of them when yeah, you the, the rise Tal- up. And the Talmud you're... says that there's three partners in every child, the father, the mother, and the Almighty. Mm-hmm. And these are the three partners that are going to raise a child to become a great person. Um, and, you know, if if one parent checks out, or, or both parents, God forbid, check out, um, and the person doesn't take the lessons of the Almighty, they probably won't actually change that much. They won't grow, they won't develop, and they won't flourish. And that's unfortunate. We see that every day. You know, we see uh, in in communities or in, in in societies where where the parents aren't doing a lot to help their children, the children grow up and don't exactly become uh, the most admirable of citizens. That could be an argument against daycare, couldn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so, 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 so let's go through the se- quickly the seven the seven levels the seven steps that we've had till now. So we start off with faith as being just something that we we don't really think about. It's it's there. It's when you asked us about faith. Uh, you know, then it, you know, then we think about it. Oh, yeah, do I have faith? But it doesn't really impact our lives. And that's, you know, that's I think the baseline level of faith that almost everyone in the world has. Um, besides for atheists, that's a different kind of faith, right? Um, but it doesn't really affect uh, affect your behavior. Now, two and three are going to be when someone really, yeah, they believe in it, they think about it, and it means something to them. Um, either in the form of a tradition, that's what their family taught them, or in the form of their evidence. But still, it doesn't really impact their behavior. Right. When we talk about emuna, level four, level four is emuna, where when you do a mitzvah, right, you're actually feeling like you're doing the will of God. Like you concentrate when you're praying, you try to think about the idea: I'm talking to God. Like this is how I'm addressing Him in first person. Right? Uh, the mezuzah is there to remind us that the Almighty exists. The tefillin that we strap on every morning, the tzitzis that we wear, the Shabbat that we observe, these are all reminders that the Almighty exists. Because it's very easy. It means our default status is forgetting that. And in order to make sure that we kind of don't, you know, just live life meaninglessly, we have these constant reminders. And then there's the higher level. And the higher level is where this is something you don't need to be reminded of. You know, you're at all times. You're, you know, of course, when you're praying, you're you're talking to God, just like if you were in the Oval Office, you'd be talking to the president. Like that, you don't need to be constantly write yourself and pinch yourself in the pants. You know, not not to forget that you're talking to the president if you're actually talking to the president. If you're talking to the Almighty, you're actually talking to the Almighty. Uh, and then the higher levels are going to be where this reality is so tangible, so palpable, so real that it's equal, in a sense, to the reality of the physical world. You know, we live in these two worlds, and now they're at par. Now the, the, the dominion of this foreign God that we have within ourselves and the dominion of the Almighty God, well, they they're, they're both hold equal sway over a person. That's what Rabbi Yochanan Zakhe tells his students. He says, I want the fear of heaven to be, as, your fear of heaven should be equal to the fear of, of man. Why is that? Because let, 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 let the minimum be that there's going to be a parity between <coughs> your fear of God, your relationship with God, and your relationship with other people. Right? It should be as real. Moving a step higher is where the relationship that you have with God, the reality of the spiritual relationship that we have with the Almighty, trumps the reality of the physical world. Right? So what dominates? Like what, what, world, what governs your world? On level seven, you're going to have someone, like Rabbi Yochanan himself, where when he meets Vespasian, he sees with his physical eyeballs the general, but what does he actually see and how does he address him? He addresses him as king because of the verse in the Torah that tells him so. It means if the verse in the Torah says X and your eyeballs show you Y, what do you see? Rabbi Yochanan saw X. Like, he saw a king even though the guy was wearing the insignias and the symbol... Ism. Well, he well he knew that's right, but he addressed him as king. Well, that was a verse. The, the verse is available to everyone. I don't know if he quite had prophecy. That would be one level up. Well, no. Rabbi Yochanan tells him 
if you're not keen, you're going to be keen because of the verse of Le- uh, the, that Lebanon will fall in the hands of the mighty. Lebanon is a reference to the temple, and the mighty is a reference to kings. Well, there you go. <laughs> Um, but but to him, like the verse is so, it's so real that that would override what his physical uh, tools uh, tell him. Level eight is prophecy. Prophecy is something we could all really have technically, theoretically, of course, um, and that is our soul has prophecy, right? What happens before a child's born? Right. So the Talmud records several prophecies that happen to the child. Well, how does a child have prophecy? A child hasn't accomplished anything. Right? If you were to make a list of the accomplishments of the child before you before they're born, it would look like this. A blank sheet of paper. Right? It doesn't have it doesn't have any there's no accomplishment. It hasn't done anything. It has faced no challenges. But it happens to be a soul. And a soul, before it has the foreign guard got inserted into it. Right? Before it becomes under the influence of the Yetzirah, it's just a soul. And a soul can have prophecy, can have direct communication with God, just by dint of its existence. It's spiritual. Spiritual entities have spiritual communication. So the soul is, the soul is prophecy without accomplishing it. You get the Yetzirah, and now you cannot have it, not because you don't have the capacity to have it, but because the capacity to have it is now hindered by the obstacle in the form of the Yetzirah. Should you be able to s- totally submit your physical and uh, you know, the Yetzirah inclination, right, everything that was given to you at birth, if you reverse that and you bring it back to the way you were in utero, so to speak, to the spiritual balance, wherein your soul... Uh, is no longer disrupted by your body. If you could reverse that, you'd have prophecy right away. Just like you had prophecy previously. We all had prophecy previously. The yes. I don't remember mentioning that. I don't remember saying that, but um, is that a reference to, I don't know who that's referenced to, part of, part of a carrot? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's not, it's not just about that. It's not just about self-denial. When you have these monks living on mountaintops mm-hmm. doing a lot of self-denial, right? Well, he wasn't self-denial. It was, uh, he had become to such a spiritual level he could sustain, he wasn't trying to deny himself anything, it's just he was able to sustain himself on planet Earth. Yeah. Well, maybe, but, uh, well... We, we know that we can't really read prophecy. Like, we're kind of matched out, probably at level six. Um, but this is how it would work theoretically. Maybe in other, in other contexts, someone would be able to achieve prophecy um, once they are at that level. Does that make sense? Well, we wouldn't be able to anyway, right? Because that's before the mish- coming of the Mashiach. Right, so we can't, we, can't have, we can't have prophecy now, right? right. That's correct. We mean the level seven, level eight, we are no longer capable of reading. This is why it's just theoretical. <laughs> We're trying, to, we're trying to get to level four. Um, so so what, what's level nine? Once you have prophecy, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, you said the soul is pure and everything else when it comes into the body. Doesn't it come mm. in with the folk? With what? The folk. Um, um, past history, is it the time correct for 
Well, maybe maybe that's why the soul, our souls, are not capable of prophecy because there's some they're not they're not in the highest levels. I, I don't know where where do you get this idea of kliput from? Is this, is this original sin? Is that? I've never read anywhere in the Talmud about the word kliput. Sorry, I'm playing games with you, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So so the idea of kliput is something that that we don't find anywhere in the Talmud. We're, of course, we're not denying the, its existence, but we're kind of working within the framework of revealed Torah, you know. Um, so yes, I, I think that, and I hinted to it, that it's possible that the reason why our souls cannot reach prophecy is because they're a lower level, or they're damaged, or whatever, however you want to uh, define it. So even if we were technically able to reverse the impact of birth, so to speak, and to negate the influence of the Eitzerah, and expose our soul, we still wouldn't be able to have prophecy because our souls are not quite, you know, good communicators. Think of it in the form of like a, a weak antenna. If you have an antenna, it can have communication. If you cover up the antenna and you disrupt the signal, it can't have communication. But you remove the disruptor and it could have the communication once again. But if the antenna itself is, is broken or it's not very powerful, it may be able to have, able to have communication, but not quite at great distances. Right? So maybe we could have a lower level of prophecy, something like Ruach HaKod or something like that, a lower level of prophecy, maybe that, that is still obtainable for us. That's what I was just getting ready to ask. What, I mean, what is the definition of prophecy versus intuition or... Well, that's the question. What's the definition of wisdom? Versus... I don't know. Are they synonymous? No, I'm just saying that wisdom can mean a lot of different things, right? The same amount of levels of wisdom that there are, there are levels of prophecy. Oh, okay. Right? But wisdom means wisdom, right? Yeah, it means a certain knowledge, it means a certain understanding, right? So, so prophecy I have a dream is and I feel like that, that dream was telling me something. Well, the is Talmud says is the Talmud says that okay. dr- a dream is a sixtieth of prophecy. A sixtieth. Yeah, so one and a half percent of prophecy. Yeah. So it kinda so it's a kind of a foreshadow what's gonna happen. I know, I'm saying maybe this is not a universal experience, but I know that I've had Times in life where I'm in situations and I'm like, ah, I've been here before. Deja and it was in a dream. Deja vu. Yeah, one of it's deja vu, but I, th- I think it's in the form of dreams. I, that happens. I, what does it mean? It, it means that, yes, when our soul is kind of emancipated to a s- very small extent at nighttime when we sleep, uh, therefore it is exposed to a certain degree to pick up certain, certain signals. The deja vu thing, because... Be if you comes in one part of the brain <coughs> and you see it on the other side of the brain, you think it's been there before. You know, it's uh, snaps. Yeah. No, but I'm <laughs> saying no, it doesn't snap. It's just uh, that, that's so. Well, it doesn't have to be deja vu, but it could also be in the form of of a dream. Right? You know, sometimes you have dreams and it's very striking and like, and then in the, and then like you experience Twilight that scenario. Zone. I mean, sometimes now, you think the dream has really occurred. Maybe it's occurring. Well, yeah. when, while, it while you're I training, it's real. Have you done that before? Well, either way, so so the so that there are many many levels of prophecy. Okay. Okay. Now we define prophecy as communication with God. That's the simplest. Okay. Right now, how do you have communication with God? You have to expose the inborn antennas or antenna, antennae. What's plural of, of antennas, guys? Antennas. I'm going to say antennas. Antennas. Antennas, okay. Um, 
You have to expose that. How do you expose that? By getting rid of the influence of the Yitzhara and thus exposing what was there already prior. Now, like we said, today we cannot have prophecy, but we could have kind of lower levels of prophecy, like a bat kol or a kol or a ruach hatodesh or other levels of prophecy that aren't quite direct communication with God. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I think people confuse that. They have a dream and all of a sudden, you know, they're... Right, but like, like there is some legitimacy to that they because... They telling you about your, you know, people that have passed away and stuff all of a sudden. You know? Yeah, but the Talmud, the Talmud, Talmud says that it's the 60th means there is something there. You know, it's a little murky, it's not clear, there's always a lot of nonsense thrown so, in as well. Again, why are we maxed out at six why? Because the Talmud says from the day that, from, if you remember, we, we recorded this like three weeks ago, from the day that the, the temple was destroyed, mm-hmm. men of faith ceased. And the Talmud defines men of faith as someone who has food in his basket today and doesn't have food for tomorrow and doesn't worry, doesn't say, what am I going to eat tomorrow? So the, the destruction mm-hmm. of the temple was a precipitating factor. Oh, yeah. Well, that, so. I'm saying, that brought about a significant decrease in kind of the spiritual vitality of the so people. When the third temple is rebuilt, that would increase theoretically, would it? Yes, because that the idea of a temple what's the idea of a temple? What's, what's, the, idea? A, what's the idea of a temple, right? Um, we had two temples, it's Solomon Temple and the second temple. It's God's dwelling house. Well, well what does that mean? It's a certain touch point between the physical and the spiritual, right? Mm-hmm. It's as if the spiritual the physical world did not, think of it in the same model that we're talking about right now. You have a physical world, and that, you know, conceals the spiritual world, right? We have the physical body, the physical Yetzirah, and that conceals our soul and our spiritual side. You have in the world at large, you have a physical world, and therefore God is not manifest in the world, or it's, it's, it's manifest in the world, but we can't see it because it's concealed. The idea of a temple is the idea of the world not inhibiting the the spiritual elements. Thus, you have a physical representation of a spiritual entity. Mm. So you walk into the temple, and even though, yes, of course, it's a big building that's got a lot of gold and silver and all that, uh, but it is an actual representation of, of, of spirituality, like the physical and the spiritual are not in opposition. The physical is not disrupting. So, so that kind of marks... The, a, a, a level that's destroyed. It's not like the building was burned down. That means so much. It means that the that, that the temple is and the, and the 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 meaning significance by the temple um, is no longer there. So why we can't build a temple or don't know, reach it to Kansas and it will be well? We could, but it doesn't mean anything. That's exactly my point. My point no, no. is is that it doesn't have to be in Jerusalem because the, well, because the, the, Torah the Torah says the Torah says it has to be it has oh. to be in okay. yeah yeah. Um, and there's a prohibition against building temples elsewhere. Uh, that being said, in history, we had there were temples built um, in northern Israel by the kingdom of 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 Israel. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they used that eventually for idolatry. There was something built in in Egypt. So every time there's been an effort to build temples elsewhere outside of Jerusalem, it really went went awry. And even today, there's 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 people there's people today that like have shovels and are ready to go, and bulldozers are ready to go and build it. Um, now, when we talk, but in, it, it, on Temple Mount, but it has to, it has to be Jerusalem and Temple Mount. It oh yeah, oh yeah, this is that's right. Suburb of Jerusalem, right? That's right. Okay. 
which which is which is one of the reasons we don't do <laughs> sacrifices anymore because sacrifices right, we, not can sacrifices. only be done in the temple, right? That's right. That's right. Now um, that being said, there was a time where there was a temple in Shiloh. Okay. Um, where is Shiloh? Before they captured Jerusalem. Do you remember Jerusalem was the last city that they captured in Israel? Mm-hmm. Right, King David captured it, and his son King Solomon built the temple on Temple Mount. Um, they didn't. So for the 400 years that preceded that, they had a temple in Shiloh. Shiloh is in southern Israel. Um, but once it was established as a final location in, in Jerusalem Temple Mount, then you can't change it. Because if you have a temporary temple, like Moshe built a temporary temple, right? The, the tabernacle. It's known as a tabernacle. It's a temporary temple. So where is the Shiloh? Yeah, where in southern, southern Israel? Southern Israel. You can go there. It's, uh, I don't know exactly where it is. It's like... Um, I mean, is it near the Dan Hills, sure, or whatever. I don't know exactly where. And that, that did not violate the. the no, that, that was fine. But they hadn't yet established the final permanent temple. Okay. So the Torah doesn't establish the final uh, place where the uh, where the temple. Well, it, it does and it doesn't. It does because it it hints at it. Or it something. Um, every time it says in the Torah the place uh-huh. it's a reference to Temple Mount okay. the place exactly so you look at when it says the place in Genesis and in Exodus and in Deuteronomy when it's about going to the place it's always a reference to the same place and that's Temple Mount um, uh, Abraham and, and and Isaac go over there Jacob stops over there on his way east and he has his, this dream with the uh, but the latter remembers that. Like, it's always referred to the same place, uh, you know, it's, it's, as the place. Um, so, um, but yeah, the idea of a temple is not just a physical edifice. It's a certain reflection of the spiritual state of the world and specifically the Jews. So if we build a temple, you know, it's, it's a building of, of wood and stone. That's what it is, if we do it. Um, and even when the temple was destroyed, by the way, the Sanhedrin already left the temple 40 years prior. So yes, the building, the physical building was still there, but it was just a vestige of, of, of the past because the spiritual uh, accompaniment was not there. So the Flavians were not as guilty as we might think about. No, well, they, were just, they, they just destroyed a, a dead building. The shell. It's shell, exactly. So why did Sanhedrin move? Because if it would be, it would do the irreparable damage. Well, they they they, they didn't move to cause that. They moved to reflect the reality. Uh, Either way, bringing us back to faith here. Once we have prophecy, what else is there? Once you have prophecy, like how could it be that you have prophecy, and yet there's two levels more? So I want to talk a little bit about Abraham. Because Abraham is someone, very interesting, obviously, character in Jewish, in Jewish history. Uh, and we find some really, really interesting statements about Abraham uh, in the Talmud. So if you look at the Talmud in the book of Avodah Zarah, Avodah Zarah is the, chap- the book of the Talmud that talks about idolatry. And you count the chapters, there's five chapters. It's five chapters. And if you count... And then, however, the Talmud says that Abraham, he had a book of Talmud, of Avodah Zarah, of, of the book of idolatry, 
And his book had 400 chapters. Wow. So if you read that, you know, just at first glance, it sounds very bizarre. Like, did he have a different book? How did Abraham have the Talmud? You know, why is there, why is there 80 times more chapters in his book than in, than in our book? What's going on? It's linked like all to time, tree. Right? Huh? It's linked to time. What do you mean? What, what do you mean it's linked to time? Well, I mean, there was more idolatry? No, no, then, no. Maybe. <laughs> some in, That's what it seems like, right? In, in yeah, the Torah, some people live 400 years, but not 400 of our years necessarily. Right? Well, Who says so, that anyway? It's either 400 years or it isn't. <laughs> 400 moons, 400 So, um, so what, what we're for sure being told, what we can all agree upon here, is that his book and our book were different. And the question, the question is why? Like, what, what, what was not, what's not included in our book that he had in his? So, I think to kind of give a little introduction here to kind of explain this, we, we talk about, um, you know, all of these factors in our lives. We have the physical reality, we have the spiritual reality. Uh, and indeed, uh, th- th- every human is different. Why, why are we all different? Why are the priorities of one human different than the priorities of the other? Like, why do people behave differently? And the answer is, is that us humans, we have the capacity of assigning value to certain entities. And our decisions are a reflection of our value system. So I say, money or life, right? What do you do? Well, what's more valuable? Money. <laughs> oh, Jack Benny used to say, I'm thinking it over. <laughs> As we know it. You know, so, so that's, uh, that's a good question. And, and, and people say, okay, well, I value my life more because if I don't have my life, then what use is all my money for me, right? You know, but if I said, hey... Uh, what would you rather, your career or kids? Huh, as a lot of people make that decision every day, right? Or, right? It's like, well, we, we're not having kids till, till, till we're ready because we're trying to grow the career, and, you know, and he's in law school, and she's doing her residency, and we can't think about that and get back to us in 10 years, right? <laughs> you know, that's a decision a lot of people make, right? They, they choose to, because to them, their career is more important than the prospect of having children, right? Um, and other people would choose otherwise, right? Because to them, children are more important. And, you know, we have, we see people all the time, you know, when they have a career and they abandon their career because it disrupts their family life. And, of course, we're not talking, we're saying that this is the reality. The reality is, is that everyone chooses what's important to them. And therefore, that's how they behave. Now, everyone's life is important to them, right? But is your life the most important thing to you? Is it? And compared to what? Uh, is it the most important thing? So lot, they have a lot of people that go to the army and they give up their lives for their country. Wh- Why? Because to them, the, 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 their country and protecting the people of the country is more important than their lives. That, well, they, yeah, that's, okay. like they risk their lives for their... Maybe well, we're talking risk. semantics here. But yeah, so, okay, uh, fine. Okay. Oh, the prospect of the loser of life doesn't stand. Okay. Right. Uh, and that's common. And we know people would give up their lives for their children, children for their sure. fellow man. Like, yeah. that, that happens all the time, where people do heroic things to save other people, and they give up their lives for it. Yeah. So you, the, the principal, the bus driver? Oh, yeah, there's a story about this recently. Yeah, yeah. they pushed the kids out of the way or something yeah, like she, that? Yeah, she died, but she saved the kids. 
you know, and, I, and I'm sure if you asked her beforehand, like, if you have the opportunity to save a couple of kids, but it meant giving up your lives, clearly this is a, a, a heroine who would have chosen to save the kids' lives and give up hers. <laughs> so Je- Jefferson said the tree of liberty must sometimes be watered with the blood of patriots. That's right. So, you know, that's kind of... Let's oh, use Trump. As long as it's somebody else. <laughs> as long as the other guy. You know, you know and uh, we, but we value our family, <laughs> yeah. and some people... You know, they value their business more than they value the family, and they ignore their family. But I'm just saying, but uh, we don't have to get so um, kind of, you know, caught up with the big questions of life, but even the small questions of life, right? Uh, I have, you know, should we go out to eat or should we go see a movie? Well, which one's more important, right? You know, which one's, which one is, you know, that that's a decision that you make. Now and you can do both. If they put out uh, a thing or something, you can eat and see a movie at the same time. We, we were at Texas Roadhouse and went to Ben uh, 13 hours last night. We, you know, we have um, the Torah classes on Sundays or tailgating to the football game. You know, they're both important, which is more important, right? We'll, we'll see if you show up or not, right? Um, but th- this is that, – that's who we are as humans. Now, some people can decide that, that sports are very important to them, like they, like they live and die for sports. You know, Other people – I mean, everyone can decide things. It's all arbitrary, right? You can decide that your stamp collection is so important to you that it's like, oh, everything's stamp collection, right? Mm-hmm. And to us, most of us, the stamp collection, that's a bunch of – especially if they're used stamps. You can't even use them anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Like why would someone invest so much into something – so meaningless. But for them, they could take something which essentially is meaningless and give it value and prioritize that in their lives. But either way, our life is going to be, or who we are as a spiritual person, is what is this construction of our, spiritual, of, of our, of our value system? What do we prioritize? And as Jews... We are commanded to prioritize God. And not only that, what happens if God is a priority in our lives, but there's something else that's a higher priority? What does that mean? Huh? And that means that's an idolatry. And, that, and that's why it made sense, by the way, that you have some other God within you. What? If there's something that's higher than God in your totem pole, well, what does that mean? There's something that's more prioritized. God, you have other gods. There's something else you. that is, and that's exactly right. And um, this kind of makes the realm of idolatry more expansive for us, no? But there's a conflict there. Because okay, you value what, say, your children's life, and that interferes. Maybe I'm going to worship or, you know, coming to services. Well, what's interesting, so maybe they're coming to services, but then we're told in the Talmud, it's Jewish law, everyone knows this, that if someone says, do idolatry or I kill you, that the Jewish response is, bite the bullet, right? That's the Jewish response. Why? Because that is a, dis- a manifestation of the fact that we, cho- we choose God above our lives. Our, our life is a priority, of course, but God's a higher priority. So if there's going to be a conflict between the two, we just chose that we cho- right? We don't realize that we're doing this, by the way. We don't realize how we're, we're, we're just, our whole life, we're constructing and arranging these priorities, mm-hmm. you know, 
but our behaviors are always reflecting them. Whenever there's a conflict of the two, we choose the one that's, that's more important to us. So if it's something that's higher than God, um, if our life, for example, is higher, uh, more of a priority than God is, then what happens? If there's a conflict of the two, we'll choose, we'll choose the higher priority, which will be our life. And in Judaism, we're told, no, you've got to prioritize God more than your life, and thus if there's a conflict, you've got to choose God, and, the, and even if it means giving up your life. But that, okay, my life, your life, that's one thing, but what about your kids? They would always come first to me, children. Okay, so... Um, um, Which priority? Like, in a life saying, and death situation. You know. Well, but the question is, in, in what situation? means we're also told that um, if someone says, uh, do any prohibition uh, against the Torah, ostensibly against God, or I kill you, we do the prohibition. There's only certain things, like idolatry and murder and adultery, only those kinds of things that we have to give up our lives to not transgress. Um, so most instances, there's not going to be a conflict. almost very infrequently going to be a conflict like that. But, um, and therefore, I'm saying, and therefore our kids um, are a really, of course, a really high priority for us. Uh, and thankfully, we we're not likely to have a scenario where that will come in conflict with, with God. But if they're a higher priority than God, then that means there's something that, that is essentially an idol. How, if something that's more priority than, what does it mean to be idolatry? Does it just mean to bow down to some sort of figurine in the corner of the room? No one does that anymore. Right? We're expanding the idea of idolatry. Idolatry is when someone has something that's in a higher priority than God. Now, what about Abraham? Right? So for us, Step one is going to be make God a priority. Step two would be make God a top priority. Where's Abraham fit in? Abraham, his book was expanded to 400 where chapters. Where did he get the book? Huh? If he's, a, if he's a father of Judaism, where did he get the book already? Well, it's, the question is, is, a, is this an actual book or this is a perspective? Right? Because remember, we, we have the book. So if he had the same book, you'd have a question. Apparently, he had a different book, right? But but it's but it's not an actual book. It's actually what it's telling us is who Abraham was as a person, mm-hmm. and what it's really telling us is that Abraham had God not only as a priority, and not only as a top priority, but as the only priority. To Abraham, anything that was not God was part of his 400 chapters. He, he, he expanded everything that was not God to be in the realm of idolatry. Thus, he had so many chapters. It was so big. A- anything in the world that's not God is, not, is no value to whatsoever. But then how did he manage to bring up Isaac? Okay, so what, so what kind of life is that? The answer is, is that, yes, things have value, but only relative value. So everything, everything is judged only vis-a-vis the only priority. God is the only priority, the only value that has intrinsic, essential value onto its own. Everything else only has value relative to God. Thus, so if your kids, if your mitzvah, so to speak, to God is going to be to raise your kids, then you raise your kids because it's going to bring you to God. Everything kind of leans back to that original idea. Breakfast, right? Why do we have breakfast? 
people. To us, we like breakfast. It's food. It's, it's priority. For us, it's its own priority. For Abraham, breakfast allows him to serve God. It's a priority because it's linked to the only priority. It has value only relative to God. So in essence, unless we more or less are in order of knowing, in other words, you basically to realize if you're committing idolatry in that form would be to be a rather religious person and and know that you're godly in order to be able to experience that. Do you see what I'm saying? No, you don't. No. But you're you're saying if if we were if we're working within Abraham's context? Not in Abraham's, but I mean even in this uh, in today's society to get a grasp on a clue that you're actually having idolatry within you, then you would have to be somewhat of a religious person. Oh yeah, I mean, and <laughs> not only not it. only I don't think it's not only religious. I think you have to be mindful because most of us don't realize what is actually motivating our behavior. Yeah, because it's, it has always been motivating our behavior, and it's we've always been uh, um, controlled by this foreign god. And therefore, to us, that's just the way things are. Uh, we don't kind of, z- you know, zoom out and so mm-hmm. to speak, look mm-hmm. at ourselves, um, you know, without the partiality of kind of the 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 influence and the control that we're being under. Um, but Abraham, this, this is a radically different idea. This is much more advanced. This is not just God's a priority, and and now okay, then the Yetzirah is going to be in conflict. Or, uh, this is. Anything, anything in the world, everything in the world has no value unto its own. It has value because it can bring you to God. So anything you'll do, will, you will only do because it's going to link you back to the, the only priority in life. Now, obviously, if you do that, now what does that mean? It means anything that, that has any value unto its own is idolatry. Well, how big would that book be? Okay, I'll, I'm going to agree with the first part of the question and not, not the second part. <laughs> um, so you're so you're saying, well, is there something higher? Is that what you're hint- you're intimating? No, no. It's something if, if he is everything, he created everything. Well, we don't say he is everything. That's a very, it's very careful with this with the semantics, because he's not everything. You know, and I'll prove it to you. Because if he was everything, we wouldn't be able to have free will, correct? Free will. No? Okay, so 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 let let's 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 say it like this. Maybe it's a better way to say it. He powers everything. He enables everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a true world, he would be the only thing that really matters. But it doesn't mean that he is everything. It's very careful. Kind of a just. I have the sensitivity. It's like a, the fingernails and chalkboard kind of thing. <laughs> um, but you're right, and, and I think that Abraham still has 400 chapters of something. And of course, he labels those 400 chapters as idolatry. Because anything onto its own is idolatry. Anything that's not God is, is, is idolatry. doesn't mean he, was, he wouldn't engage in those things, but he would 
in the context of bringing him to what is his only priority. Now, uh, I want to stress this. This is not something we can obtain. This is not a level we can obtain. Right? We're matched at a level six. And hopefully we'll get to level four or five even. You know, um, but this is this is this is Abraham. This is a very high level. This so is what where level, level nine, where the whole physical world, everything that's not God, has no value whatsoever. How do you get to this? I'm sure he climbed up the levels by himself. Get on the elevator. It's not, not the elevator. You go where you <laughs> take the steps. But I know for myself, it's just I finally came to a life. I tried like studying all this mystical stuff and all that, and then. I'm like at the point now where I'm just like, I just need the basics, <laughs> you know? I do. Mm-hmm. And then that way I can maybe comprehend all of the idolatry, all of the things that bring bad stuff into my life. I want to just get the basics You down. know, and I think of the Torah is our tool and our manual to climb up this ladder. And we start from the Torah, and we don't need to do anything mystical or anything deep or exciting or scintillating or Kabbalah or esoteric. Yeah. We don't need that. We have the Torah. The Torah is our guidebook. Um, and if we follow the Torah, we'll get there. And if we try to take the fast with the elevator uh, by going the route of Kabbalah and let's just go to the top, then we'll probably get stuck in the elevator. And that's, not, that's no fun. That's a little claustrophobic. Going back mm-hmm. to this lady's comment about children Exactly, and I actually, um, uh, Steve will confirm here that I actually have that written in my notes here. Wow. That, um, <laughs> oh. do, is it in my notes? I, I, well, there's a Antes lot of tests of Abraham. Yes. <laughs> okay, so that's exactly what it was. Like, of course, to murder your child is evil. Yeah. And that's something that we would never do. But why won't we do it? Is it because it's evil unto its own? Is that a value unto its own? Or is that because of God? God says not to do it. So essentially, when God tells him, go murder your own child, he's placed with a conflict of the very last value that maybe he could have to just murdering your own child in cold blood. That's something that we would say, we don't even need God for that, right? That's a value unto its own. Mm-hmm. And then God says, okay, I'm going to tell you to do that. And we'll find out if that's a value unto its own. Or that's only connected, linked to and, God. And we typically focus on Abraham and his faith in that story, but Isaac was not this little toddler. He was uh, probably a teenager, maybe older. 37 years old. He was 37? 37 was different at that time. I yeah. was thinking like 37 is the new five. Yeah, and I think if you actually look at Abraham said no. Well, then that would have proven that Abraham wasn't quite there, that this was the only priority. 
that would have just proven to him that he had some priority aside from God. That would be the priority of not killing innocent children, especially when they're your own children. Right? And I'll give you another example, right? One, one, one of, Abraham had ten tests, famously, right? One of the ten tests was to send his own son, Ishmael, this time, send him packing and say, okay, I'm taking you out, go on your own. Now, Abraham was known for his kindness, correct? Mm-hmm. Doesn't that seem to be antithetical to kindness? Where's the kind Abraham? It could be construed as tough love. <laughs> right? But, but kind, Abraham welcomes in even foreigners. <laughs> Abraham welcomes in the pagans. Everyone who comes to Abraham's door, he's so welcoming and hospitable to them. And his own child, he sends him packing and says, you know, just fend off for yourself. Yeah, right? Look where he started already. Ismail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, what does that mean? That was God's plan. What Abraham is being tested in is your kindness. Is that a value unto its own? Is that a priority unto its own? Or is that a priority because God wants it to be a priority? And therefore, when Abraham disavows his kindness because of God, that demonstrates that his kindness throughout his life is because of God. So all these steps are, 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 are steps to demonstrate. And you say like, God says, do a bad thing. Why would God say do a bad thing, right? The answer is because God is saying, do a good thing, but do a good thing against what I'm telling you. And that will demonstrate if you're doing good things because of God or doing good things because they have value unto their own. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Huh? A little bit. I don't understand, though, why God would... How did, how did Abraham know whether or not that was God? What well, he had prophecy. Abraham is a prophecy. Okay. It was, it was so, already eclipsed level eight. He's so a none of us are ever going to. I mean, in our world, we're never going to experience God telling us to kill our child. You know? that's, that's, that's that's right. And if we do, we, we shouldn't do it. We right? We should go to have yeah, come talk to me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Andrea Yates. Yeah. There are people that God told her, right, but she wasn't. She's not. Yeah, she was not mentally saying. healthy. We're, we're not going to yeah. see that in our lifetime. But right. it does happen. Yeah, but, but they end up in, in yeah, the psychiatric ward or jail. Yeah, well. Right, so, uh, <laughs> I mean, but, but, but I think it's still valuable. Really Even if it's it. not practical, it's still valuable. It's still Torah. We're still trying to understand her. Abraham, right? The Torah makes a big deal out of Abraham. And we have to try to dig deeper, try to find out what, where was he in his spiritual growth. what is the difference between 8 and 9? 9 is Abraham. 8 is going to be prophecy. Just a run-of-the-mill prophecy. Right, well, run-of-the-mill prophecy is not run-of-the-mill prophecy. It's the idea of prophecy at large. And like we said, prophecy is a lot of different levels. So the prophecy of Dave and the prophecy of Joshua and the prophecy of Abraham and the prophecy of Ezra, these are different levels of prophecy. Like at the end of the prophecy, there's like the waning era of prophecy because everyone knew that prophets were disappearing because the quality of the prophets was diminishing. And so they were still prophets, but they weren't the same prophets as in the robust era of prophecy. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this, this really explains a lot about Abraham. Like, Abraham's coming together now. Abraham is someone who's kind. He's someone who has faith. Right? Those two are born out of the same core entity. Remember, the Torah presents Abraham as the paragon of kindness, while, while he's the most famous for us because he's the paragon of monotheism. He's the developer of monotheism. Right? Why is he presented in, 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 in the light of Kindness, the answer is because that all came from the same thing. To him, he had God as the only priority. And that was manifested with whatever God wants. So God wants to be kind. God himself is kind, right? He wants us to be kind, so Abraham was kind. Of course, that was a, that was a, that was a, a byproduct 
of his system, internal system of values. And then God tells him, don't be kind. And he's not kind because he's not kind because his, his kindness at large is not because of something that's isolated and that's not connected to God. It's because of God. And therefore, when God tells you not to do it, you don't do it. And the ultimate kindness or the ultimate anti-kindness would be killing your own son. And that would be, that was a common thing at the time for the pagans to do. Sacrifice, child sacrifice, and kill your own kid. That was, that was a common thing. And then God tells Abraham, okay, let's show me your stripes. Are you against pagans because you're against pagans? Means because you think it's barbaric? Or because of God? Thus, when all that comes into conflict, when all the things that Abraham did and refrained from doing, that came into conflict with what God wanted him to do, right? When God asked him explicitly to do, we, sh- we were shown with absolute certainty that the only influence in his life was God. And that's, and that's level, uh, level nine. And level 10, like you mentioned, uh, where nothing else exists. So let's talk a little bit about Moses. Kind of walk through a little bit of some of the highlights of Moses' career and see how maybe this is even a level higher. Uh, Abraham had a book that had 400 chapters, and in it was delineated everything in the world that's not God. So every behavior, every um, good behavior, every bad behavior that you refrain from, everything that you could possibly enjoy, everything that you could see or touch or feel, think about, dream about anything that was not God. And that book was, I'm sure, something that he studied. And because this was his book of idolatry. Everything that was not God was included in idolatry. Even good things, even good things that we would say kindness is a good thing. But if it's not in the realm of what God told you to do as kindness, God tells you not to do kindness, well then it's idolatry to do to be kind. Had Abraham been kind to Ishmael when God tells him to not be kind to Ishmael, that kindness would be tantamount for Abraham to idolatry. But he still had a book. Moshe didn't have the book. Moshe's level is where he was living in Olam Haba. If you went to Olam Haba, if you were able to be granted VIP access for a little bit, you wouldn't find those things that Abraham had in his book. It's not like you would have to reject them like Abraham had to reject them. You wouldn't have to write them all down in this vast book of idolatry. They wouldn't exist. Yeah, they may exist. You won't see them. In the exact, if you can make a mirror image of planet Earth, of our world, of our existence, and just change the reality, right? You have our spiritual reality that's totally covered up, and our physical reality is totally manifest. If you could change that upside down, that's what Allah is. Yeah, you may have a physical reality, but you will never notice it. Just like we have a soul, we don't even think about the soul, we don't notice it. We ignore it. Take that, flip it on its head. That's what that's what Allah is. You don't notice that you're a body. You have a body. You can live your whole life without noticing you have a body. You're just soul first, and body's not even there. Moses didn't have to write this book of idolatry because he didn't notice it. In his world, he was living here like he was, like he was in Lama Ba. Now, what are the, some characteristics of Lama Ba? So we're told in the Talmud there's no eating, there's no drinking, there's no sleeping. 
the body doesn't factor in. Moshe goes up to the heaven, and he comes back down, and he tells us, it's mentioned several times in the Torah, that for 40 days and 40 nights he didn't eat nor drink. And, I don't know if it's explicit, but he didn't sleep either. The same things that were told that do not happen in Lama Ba, Moshe didn't do in this world. Moshe didn't eat, drink, or sleep. Now, how does a, how does a human survive without eating or drinking? How do you do it? You'll die. You'll die because our iterations of humans are ones that the body is such an influence and such a force that it needs to be tended to. Well, in that 40 days, Moses was not, could it be construed, he was in God's world, not in the physical world? Oh, yeah, but he was capable of going there. We wouldn't be able to go there. Okay, but that's, isn't that the answer to how he did it? How he that, Well, that's he, the answer. Well, the, well, okay, but, <coughs> but when, when he emerged from the mountain, did he retain that or not? Probably not. I assume he ate. Okay, so that's the question. Oh, no, well, that's a good question. But either way, he was at least able to touch that point, to reach okay. that point at some point okay. in his life, right? Now, additionally, we're told that we're told that um, Moshe, when he was up in the heavens, he time traveled. That's right, to Rabbi Atiba. Now, why are we not capable of time traveling? And Moshe is capable of time traveling. The answer is, is because Moshe was living as an untethered soul, right? The reason why we're living in a very rigid, fixed world, uh, because our body, right, is a citizen of that world, and we are our body. Moshe was able to entirely divest himself of any influence of his body, and he was living entirely in the spiritual realm, and therefore, his soul was free to go wherever it wished. Now, what's interesting is that the Almighty kind of nudges him along. So you could say, oh, you know, if you read that Talmudic passage that talks about Moshe's time traveling in Benachos 29b, it does say that the Almighty kind of nudges him along. So maybe yes. But either way, why can't we be nudged along, right? Because we're not quite there. Our body still, you know, wields a lot of influence over us. Uh, we're not in Lama, but we're Lama Zeh. We're in this world. And this world we got to eat, we got to drink, we got to sleep. And we can't time travel. And Moshe is on a level where none of that is in existence. He doesn't, he doesn't see resistance, so to speak. His soul sees no resistance. I'll give you some more examples if you don't like time travel because it gets a little too sci-fi-y for you. I'll give you some more examples here. Um, we're told that Moshe had prophecy Ba'aspaklaria mi'ira. With aspaklaria mi'ira, which means with clear aspaklaria, clear um, visuals. Now, what does that mean? It means that Moshe's prophecy, all the prophets had prophecy ba'aspaklaria she'ena mi'ira. All the prophets had prophecy with, with, with aspaklaria, with clarity that's not clear. Moshe had with clear clarity or clear aspaklaria. Hard to define that word exactly. Moshe had clear prophecy. Everyone else had muddled prophecy. Why? If you're a prophet, I'll tell you how you do it. Quick, uh, quick and dirty tips to how to have prophecy. <laughs> right? So the Ram tells us there's several differences between Moshe's prophecy and everyone else's prophecy. Number one, 
Moshe had direct instructions as opposed to imagery that you interpret. So for example, Jacob, we spoke about Jacob a, a little bit uh, ago. Jacob is going to sleep and he sees a ladder. The ladder is uh, it's, it's, it's the, the top of the ladder is in the heavens and the foot of the ladder is on land and he sees angels going up and down. Now, that was a dream, but that was also a prophetic dream. And that's an example of a prophecy of every other prophet aside from Moses. Number one, it's by, it's by night. Number two, it's in the form of a dream. Number three, it's in the form of imagery that the prophet himself has to interpret it. Right? He, as a prophet, you learn how to interpret your, your visions. Moshe, he's not sleeping. There's no imagery. It's direct instructions. Uh, it doesn't go through any angels. There's no, there's no intermediate, so to speak, to deliver the prophecy to the prophet. Moshe has direct communication with God in the form of instructions. Not only that, Thurum tells us that when a prophet when a prophet prophesies, they're shaking violently. It's not a very very pleasant experience. The reason why it's not a pleasant experience for that for for a prophet to have prophecy is because when you have prophecy, you have prophecy. The only question is, what is you? You is going to be body and soul. Correct. Right. To the degree that your body exists, you're going to have a hard time having prophecy. Your body is not capable of prophecy. Not at all. It's not. It's not. So when you have prophecy, there's a part of you that's going to be rebelling. It's going to be too much for you. And to the degree that with which the body is stronger and bigger, that's how much more difficult prophecy will be. And how more painful it, so to speak, is because your body is not able to handle it. Your body is getting electrocuted, so to speak. Moshe is awake, he's fine, because his body is not at, at all of a factor. He's just a soul. Yeah, he has a body, but who is he? He's a soul. And not only that, um, the Ram adds another thing, is that he has prophecy whenever he wants, as opposed to the rest of the prophets. They have to they have to be ready for prophecy and they get prophecy if, uh, if the Almighty decides to give it to them. Uh, so we see five differences between the prophecy of Moses and the prophecy of all the other prophets. And it's not just random differences. It's because Moshe was a different entity. Moshe was someone that had completely divested himself of any shred of physical reality and totally lived in the spiritual realm. The only influence that he had was his, was his soul. Abraham had a soul plus 400 chapters of body, which to him was idolatry. But even if you have idolatry, there's something there. There's something there to reject. What, you know, where do we get the, maybe I missed something, where do we get this 400 <laughs> chapters of, uh, of Abraham, you know, his, his book or whatever? Yeah, so the Talmud tells us that Abraham had 400 chapters of idolatry. Oh, now, okay. the question is, what, does that mean? What, what are they trying to say? Did he have a really, really fit book? Did he have to bind it really difficultly? What it's telling us is that his perspective of idolatry was much vaster. No, I got that. Yeah. I got that. Yeah. Just the idea. Yeah, so it's, it's in the Talmud. The Talmud, Talmud somebody wrote that there was... Yeah, but remember, they're telling us something deep here. We're trying to understand what they're trying to yeah, tell us. Yeah, Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, so Moses, right? Moses here has this ability to be just 
Level 10 Prophet eventually acquires this ability. Oh, he moved up the level. He moved up, he moved up, up the when? levels. When? Good question. Yeah. When did he get to the top? You know, so, um, and how did that really affect him? Because it's actually very interesting. Maybe we'll talk about this now. Oh, we'll talk about it a little bit, but remind me to talk about kind of the difference between Abraham, Moshe before he got there and after he got there. Um, I'll give you guys another example about how Moshe was different. Um, we're told, if you guys remember, uh, a couple months back, we quoted the Midrash that talks about what happens to the soul and body when they get united. Body goes into the soul, the soul, goes, soul goes into the body, and the soul is very miserable, right? Uh, your soul is depressed beyond belief because for the soul to be put in the body in unis in unity in unity in, in unity, um, it's very painful because it's the opposite. It's being forced against its will into a marriage that it doesn't want. Wow. And uh, and the Almighty kind of compels the soul to to be harbored within the body. And death. For, for us, is separation of soul and body. For the soul, it's liberation. Because the soul <laughs> is finally liberated from the confines of the body that was holding it hostage, so to speak, through the 70, 80, 90, 100 years of our lives. They're opposites. And they only exist because of the will of the Almighty, that they should exist together. And therefore, death is just very exciting for the soul. And it's very painful, of course, for the human at large, uh, or it could be very painful, uh, but for the soul's liberation. We find at the end of the Midrash, the very same Midrash that told us that, tells us what happened when Moshe died. <coughs> There's a very long dialogue between Moshe and all the angels that the Almighty sends to take his soul out of him. So if I remember, Moshe's communicating with angels, talking, no problem, right? I guess if you can talk to God, what's the, what's the big deal to talk to angels? So there's all these angels that, that he sends, and Moshe repels them, Moshe rebuffs them. And God sends like a good angel and Moshe rejects him, sends him packing. God sends a bad angel and Moshe destroys him. And tells him, no chance. And then the Almighty himself says, okay, I'm going to come and take, and take away Moshe's soul. So he comes and we have this very kind of, very emotional discussion, dialogue between the Almighty and Moshe's soul. And the Almighty tells the soul, Biti, my daughter, Come, your time has come, and I got a special place for you. You don't have to worry about it. You're perfect. You're cl- you're clean. You don't have to worry about any retribution. You're good to go. You're home free, right? You're home free. And what does Moshe's soul respond? There's no better place for me to be than in the body of Ben Amram of Moshe. While our soul is suffering every instant that it's in our body because the body is just so there and so overbearing, Moshe's body was spiritual. Moshe's body was a better locale, a better venue for the, his soul to be harbored than under God's heavenly throne. Moshe didn't have this conflict. His soul did not have any inhibitors. His soul was free, was, was free already within him. It wasn't at all hindered by his body. 
And of course, that was reflected in his prophecy and his ability to go for it without eating or drinking, and his able to, ability to tra- time travel. His soul was free was, was was free already with the body. And you know, uh, additionally, Moshe goes down from the mountain, right? So he's up in the mountain, and he goes up the mountain. And he's there for forty days and forty nights. He does time travel in the in the in the in the, in the interim. He comes back down, and what happens? Busted up the commandments. Well, yeah, okay. People had lost faith. Well, people, some of the people lost faith, and he intervenes, and he goes back up again, and comes back down again. Mm -hmm. When he comes back down, the people are finally, are finally forgiven. The people cannot look at him. If you look at the chapter, I think it's thirty-four of Exodus. Moshe's face is as bright as the sun. Y'all remember that? Something like that, yeah. So Moshe puts on a mask that he would wear for the rest of his life. If you don't remember it, you'll read it, you'll read it next week. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> no, we're not quite there next week. Well, Mishpatim, Teruma, Tetzavah, Kisisa. So in four parshas, but I think, uh, so it's four, it's not this week. I think Kisisa and the Kisisa. Um, we just did Yisro, right? Yeah. Mishpatim, Teruma, Tetzavah, Kisisa. Um, in a couple of weeks. So, why, why, why can't the people look at him? Why is his face so bright? Right? Yeah, what changed? And what's the idea of Moshe's face is like the sun? What's the, what's that idea? So we're told God, uh, he's God's representative on earth because you can't. Well, look we're on all God. God's representative. On earth. Well, yeah. but he couldn't look at it. The people couldn't look at him. The answer is that Moshe did not have anything hindering his soul. It was nothing to kind of take away the, the ultraviolet rays of his soul. Um, and we're told, and there's many, many Talmudic and, and, and textual, scriptural verses that talk about Olam Haba, the next world, as being like the sun, as bright as the sun. For example, the Oav of Ketzeis Hashemesh B'Gurasso, um, that like, the, like the, the people in Olam Haba are like the the the, uh, the the sun going out in its in its in its strength. Um, there's other examples. For example, the Talmud that talks about Alamaba is similar to three things. We had a whole class on that, if you all remember. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Alamaba is like three things. It's like Shabbos. It's like the sun. And the sun is something that's so beyond us, we can't see it, we can't fathom it. We can't even look at it, right? Even though it's in this world. You try looking at the sun, right? You try doing the sun stare for 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. You can't do it. Yeah. Why not? Because it's beyond you. It's, it's a different realm. Huh? Not recommended. Andre, it's not, not recommended. That's right. Uh, and I'll get to in a second. Um, and Moshe was there in this world. He achieved the level of Lama Ba in this world, where his soul was the only influence in his life, and the body was not there to kind of mask it, so he had to put on an artificial mask. Well, well, there was still a there's there's still a body. That's the thing. There's still a body, but the body has no sway. And if you know, if 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 the, if the motion looked like the sun, you probably wouldn't be able to see his body. Try looking at the try at the sun and imagine there's a body on it. You can't look at it, right? It's too bright. Uh, so the soul was so overwhelming that the body was insignificant. So the fact there was there was an actual body. Right, he still was a human, still a body and soul connected, 
but the body and the soul were indistinguishable. Now, um, so and you none mentioned of that was metaphorically speaking. Oh, well, it says he put on a mask. You know, he actually he actually put on the mask. Okay. So I'll give us an example about uh, kind of what Moshe, how Moshe changed and how it was reflected in his perception. If y'all remember, in this very same room, about a year, year and a half ago, we talked about the question of theodicy and why bad things happen to good people. Uh, and it's interesting that, first of all, Jewish sources do not shirk away from talking about this. Uh, obviously, as sensitive, and as careful we have to be when we talk about this, it's, it's something that we address. Uh, and there's two conversations that the Talmud records, a dialogue between Moshe and the Almighty on this issue, where Moshe asks God, why are bad things happening to good people? And the fact that there's two conversations is very interesting because if you ask God the question and God gives you an answer, why would you ask again? And why would you be given a different answer? And it's also interesting is that these two dialogues are time-stamped. We know exactly when the first time this discussion was was brought up, and we know the second time it was brought up. So something changed with him. So something changed with Moshe, and that's reflected in his answer that he got and how he understood the answer. And indeed, I, I don't want to get into it, but it's interesting to if you, if you look, and I'll, I'll advise everyone, subscribe to the podcast, and find the class. It's there. Why bad things happen to good people. Um, we did it in this very room. and We, we t- do talk about this at, at, at great length kind of why Moshe asked the question, and he got one answer before he reached level 10. And then he asked the question again after he's reached level 10, and he gets a different answer. And Moshe essentially is asking the question again. The question is on Moshe, right? You ask the question once, why would you ask the question again? The answer is that Moshe recognized that he had moved up a stage and that maybe now he would understand it. And he asked the question again, and indeed he gets a different answer. Which, by the way, as a side note makes our foray into that question difficult to know. Like if Moshe himself didn't understand it at level nine or wherever he was prior, you know, it's possible there's a thousand levels, right? Uh, but what we're calling level 10, he hadn't quite reached his pinnacle and he had a hard time understanding it. That should give us pause uh, if we are to consider that we'll understand it fully as well. Uh, we, huh? Might be well, no. So, 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 yes. We 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 did kind of address this this question and kind of how we can understand it, what context we can't understand it. But either way, it is interesting to know that when Moshe goes up to the mountain and he asks the question the first time, and then when he comes down after he's had this second trip to the mountain and he's had the second, you know, um, uh, achievement in his levels of Amuno how he sees the world differently now, how, how, what would the world look like if you were entirely spiritual? What would make sense and what wouldn't make sense? Right. And how it's addressed to him uh, uh, then, it's just very interesting to kind of chart it all out. Okay, so now, uh, what about us, right? You know, we're like Hopeless. languishing at the lowest levels of, of, of faith and 
we're trying to find meaning in life and you know where where are we and how do we how do we go about from this so I think that just our knowledge and our understanding is 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 a lot. Um, I think that this could be viewed as an introduction to Jewish life in general, at, at large. You know, what's the Torah? The Torah is a guidebook to upgrading our emuna, essentially upgrading our soul from being dormant to being active, activating our soul. That's a one way of view of viewing the Torah, of pushing us up these levels. Um, and we start off maybe at level zero, and we move up. Society pushes us to one or two, and maybe on our own we can get to level three, and then level four with mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are going to help us let, get to level four and, and maybe even five. Um, and and that's fantastic. And I think you know we have some more. I think to talk about this issue uh, on the in this uh, series. Uh, Unfortunately, we didn't get to where I wanted to get to. That's uh, always a symptom of, of really interesting and really important conversations, discussions. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit about, okay, so what does this mean for us? You know, like how do we expand this to Tikkun Olam? Tikkun Olam, what's Tikkun Olam? Tikkun Olam is to fix the world. To fix the world, right? We have a broken world. The body-soul, spiritual-physical paradigm is so skewed in one way where God's ignored. And our job as Jews is to fix that, you know. But we're going to try to maybe uh, find some time to kind of get into the more specifics. But I think really every discussion that we have and every kind of practical uh, integration of Torah into our lives is going to push up, uh, push us up this level. And I think when you have the big picture of, of, of how it, where it all stands and where we stand and where we can go, where we ought to go, where we're obligated to go, it makes our relationship with Torah entirely different. You know, Torah is the tools that the Almighty gives us <laughs> to upgrade our humanity. Now, I take the Dodo human 3.0, right? 4.0, we could do that. We change who we are. Moshe started off also, he was a crying baby in a box. Right? We take our kids, we put them in boxes or cribs, however you want to call them, and they're crying babies, you know? And he started off like that, and look where he got to. It was even a felon, a wanted murderer. <laughs> uh, I think it was self-defense. Yeah. Um, and he started off like we do. Now, granted, we accept the fact that we can't get there, probably. Um, but we can get closer. And my mom tells us we can get there. We can be like Moshe. So maybe we can't be level 10, but we could be maybe our Moshe, our level of, of our max achievement to be level 6, and we need to get there as well. That would be as great as Moshe, uh, because Moshe maximized what he was able to do, and we'll maximize what we can do. Was his only level 10 in history? Oh, yeah, Moshe, yeah, Mo, yeah. maybe with the, there's a question about Adam. Adam pre-sin might have been there as well, but Adam kind of was put there. Didn't earn it. Yeah, he didn't earn it, that's right. Um, that's the way to go. So this is if you want to if you want to nut up someone uh, who likes who someone who has experience in 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 Jewish thought and say okay Moshe after Mount Sinai versus Adam pre sin just say those words and like watch them go into a tizzy 
<laughs> uh, because it's a very good question. Like, so uh, by the way, you just answered my question when he graduated from nine to ten. Yeah, well, af- after science, so we look look, look at TC and look kind of him going down from the mountain, and he has this very intriguing dialogue with God, harating us for decha, show me your glory, and God says, "Well, you can't see my face because he, you know, put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll, my my glory will pass." But like, what is going on over there? Like, it's very hard for us to find what this is. This is Moshe kind of living on a different realm than we are, and that's and that's, that, that's where he reaches his pinnacle. We don't assume that he lost it, right? He didn't lose it uh, um, for the rest of his life. Okay, so that's that, guys. Uh, I encourage everyone to download the podcast and uh, look forward to seeing you guys next time. Lots of fun. What's next time? Next week? Uh, Super Bowl. Super Bowl.